Tuesday, April 16th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and for Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger. Back again, gentlemen. Back again. Back. Too. Good to see you. Uh, earnings Palooza rolls on. We're going to talk Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson, Goldman Sachs. Uh, but we have to start with what happened yesterday in Boston. Um because uh, we talked yesterday about the marathon, and uh, we we taped it uh, while the marathon was still going on, and then uh, I guess it was a couple hours after we got out of the studio. The, I I first saw it breaking on Twitter, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it was one of those things where people that I follow on Twitter were at the marathon and saying, you know, things like I just heard a loud thud, and was there an explosion? And then obviously this this tragic story unfolded. Um, and, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, with a friend of mine last night about Boston because I, I lived there for five years. Maddie, you're, you're from up there. You know that there, there are certainly bigger cities in America. There are bigger marathons, mm-hmm. um, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, that kind of thing. And yet the Boston Marathon, just as a sporting event, um, is kind of like Mount Everest for runners. You had, you had, I think the number I saw was 96 countries, runners coming from all over the world to run in the Boston Marathon. But then, as a locality, it's much more than just a marathon. This is, a, as we said yesterday, it's Patriots Day. It's a holiday in Massachusetts. You have kids out of school. Um, the Red Sox play at 11 a.m. Yeah, the Red, morning it's, baseball. It's, it's the one morning baseball game of the mm-hmm. year, and there are people who just use this as a as an opportunity to gather with friends, barbecues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I was talking with Seth Jason because uh, uh, Seth uh, ran the marathon, Matt Koppenhafer, uh, uh, and they're both fine. Um, and uh, and Seth, and I, I think it's, uh, by his own admission, Seth is uh, a kind of a curmudgeonly kind of guy. Sure. Who runs... Fair point. Who runs uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 marathons <laughs> every year. And he was, and this is his first time running Boston, and he said around mile 22, he started crying. Seth is not... Again, he's a curmudgeon, and he was just so blown away by all of the encouragement, all the people lining the marathon route for the full 26 miles, that as he was coming down the home stretch, he was just overtaken with emotion. And, and again, not a guy to be overtaken with emotion. Right. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so it, it, I think it really you know, gives a little bit of a sense of, of what the day is like up there, which just makes this, this horrible tragedy all the more, all the more horrible. Um, uh, so uh, hopefully uh, people in Boston will be able to um, slowly move on from this. It is, it is one of those sort of jarring incidents. Um, I, I do want to say a special thanks to uh, Jamie Callahan, one of our listeners in Washington State, who uh, reached out to me on Twitter last night um, because, again, we had talked about it. We had taped the mm-hmm. podcast before any of this stuff unfolded, and he just sent me a message saying, hey, are those guys okay? Yes, Matt and Seth uh, ended up okay. So um, uh, did you, did you, you were, we were talking earlier. You were, you were checking in with people up in, in right. Massachusetts. Well, and thanks for what you said, Chris, because it is Patriots Day. It is in Boston Marathon. It's that it's that day it, for me. Growing up there, it always it was it, it felt like the first day of spring. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, a, ho- it's, it's a holiday. First of all, spring doesn't start till later anyway in Boston because right. it's cold. <laughs> it's a long winter. Um, but yeah, it was it, that always felt like that first day. You know, most a lot of people are out of work. You're hanging out. You yeah, you're usually spending time with family and friends. Uh, and it was it was a jarring inc- uh, incident to me. And I. Just checked in with my family, checked in with some friends that I have out there. Thankfully, no one was was anywhere near yeah. what went down. 
Um, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because it just seems, um, especially for that kind of event, you know, we can speculate all we want about the motives behind the attack or anything, but just to, to hit an event like that that is just brings together so many people from so many countries, as yeah. you said, just in a, in a joyous event, in a sport, uh, a race, and it gives some recognition to Boston, which is kind of one of those, I mean, to me, it's the great one of the greatest cities in the world, but it is kind of a, you know, a second-tier city to, like, New York or San Francisco or Chicago. But at the same time, it's, that, it's the day when that city shines at its best, and that certainly put a dark cloud over, over that day. It is. Um, <clears throat> all right, so we will continue because this... As our producer, Mac, likes to say, ultimately, this is a business show. Business continues. So let's proceed with uh, Earnings Palooza. Revenue for Coca-Cola's first quarter dropped by 1%. Overall sales volume was up 4%. Earnings came in higher than expected. And we were talking earlier, Jason, shares this morning up 5%. I've owned this stock yeah. for over a decade. I've, I can't recall a time when the stock has moved up or down 5%. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it's a, it's a relatively, uh, I don't want to say quiet stock, but yeah, just, it's, it's a pretty solid, steady, eddy sort of dividend payer that doesn't do that often. Uh, I think that a lot of that has to do with this talk of, sort of going back to this refranchising model in North America. And so, you know, for the longest time we've been looking at Coca-Cola really as the North American operations and, and even places like Europe and, and whatnot are are more or less flat, not growing nearly as much as pr- potentially the BRIC nations like Brazil, Russia, India, China, places like that. And so we're trying to figure out how are they going to grow more, and this is how they're going to do it. Or not at least grow, but how how they're going to become more profitable. I think really it's a good idea because what they're going to do is more or less take a lot of these bottling operations back out of their house and give it back to the bottlers. And now what this will do, is you, as you observed earlier before we started taping, yeah, it, it may – it may shrink their revenue, their top line revenue a little bit in, in regard to that segment. But what it will do, it'll also increase, it, it'll improve their cost structure, which should ultimately, you know, result in better margins. Uh, so it, it just showing that they're going to be able to work in, in conjunction with their partners. And that's what we've always admired so much about, about Coca-Cola through the years is just a phenomenal distribution platform from top to bottom. And so I think that's what's got the market, uh, excited today. And, you know, I mean, for, for all of the, the flat, flat sort of growth here or lack of growth here, again, Brazil, Russia, India, places like that, solid growth. China, maybe not so much, but I was impressed to see Thailand with 18% volume growth there. I mean, they like their Coca-Cola products <laughs> over in Thailand, apparently. Um, so yeah, I mean, you've got, they're doing really well with things like Honest Tea. Yep. Double digit growth there. And I mean, this is a company, you look, they've grown their balance sheet from $5 billion in short term investments in cash in 2008 to, to close to 20 billion today. So it is, it is a mammoth company with a really uh, solid balance sheet, pays a nice dividend. And I think that a lot of people are looking for those companies today as fixed income as we know it is more or less dead. Coke is just a very attractive looking company right now. And particularly for a, a huge global multinational company like Coca-Cola, the thing that's really dragged a lot of those companies down is the stronger U.S. dollar. I, look, I know we're going to talk about Johnson & Johnson as well. It's just these companies that get so much of their revenue uh, overseas have really been hurt by that. And it's kind of a – it's not really something that's really out there in terms of, of headlines. But, um, yeah, stronger U.S. dollar. If, if the dollar ever weakened at all against a lot of these markets, you could see some pretty substantial gains in revenue. We also, I mean, back to, to Jason's point, I mean, you, you look at the growth in 
yes, you know, great growth in Thailand. Not, you know, not obviously a huge market, but when you look at, I would say, significant, steady to significant growth in places like India, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, that's, uh, I mean, that's just one of those things that, it seems like it could have a snowball effect. It can, and it, it transcends Coca-Cola. I mean, like, it, just from our time living in Egypt and in Kazakhstan, for example, I mean, you see all of the bottled waters, the juices, the teas, the things that go beyond just the sparkling beverages. And so it's it's really, I mean, in looking at Coca-Cola, you have to look well past just Coke and the sparkling beverages. And then, you know, further to Maddie's point there, it's a, it's a global play. And for, for investors looking for an international a sort of exposure to their portfolio, Coca-Cola Granted, it's an American company, but it's one of the best international investments out there, in my opinion. And, and their products, I mean, I, one, one company I study is a company called Arcos Dorados, which stands for Golden Arches. It's the McDonald's of Latin America. And in places like Brazil, Venezuela, or Mexico, where they, uh, where they compete, McDonald's is actually considered kind of a luxury item. Mm-hmm. And I think that's still the case for a lot of, for Coke. In a lot of these countries, it's, you know, wow, I, I can, I can go buy a Coke. It's just, it's kind of this, you know, this brand that, this American brand that, that a lot of people for a long time haven't had access to and now they're, they're getting. It. And you see, you're going to see some pretty steady, strong growth rates, I think, in a lot of these emerging countries. And yet, even with the bump in the stock today, over the last year, shares of Pepsi, which really had been lagging Coca-Cola for a long time, over the last year, handily beating Coca-Cola. Uh, is that uh, is that something where Pepsi is turned a corner and they've gotten their operational house in order? Or is that more a reflection of the run that Coca-Cola stock has had? Is there anything about Pepsi's performance over the last 12 months that makes you think about dipping into those shares as opposed to Coca-Cola. I, for me personally, I mean, Pepsi's just not as attractive a play because of their their focus on other things. You know, they have they have the salty snack, the snack food, uh, which I mean, hey, I love. Salty I was going to say, snacks, I, I, I believe what you meant to say was delicious. Right? Yes, salty I, I mean, yeah. Let's let's be very clear here. I, I probably keep them in business, but uh, with that said, I, I think that you know when you look at something like a Coke, that's more of a pure play, and I think that's why they've continued to operate so consistently well. Uh, Pepsi definitely has, has had some some in house issues lately. And I think I don't know if they've turned a corner yet, but it does seem like we're, we're witnessing us witnessing some operational improvements there, which has helped the stock price along. First quarter profits for Johnson and Johnson came in higher than expected. The consumer sales division, in particular, uh, shined with revenue of three point seven billion. Uh, that's Tylenol, Motrin, Listerine. Which, to your point about salty snacks, I think <laughs> I think my house is is helping Johnson and Johnson oh, in that yeah. regard. Um, it seemed like a pretty strong quarter, and and Matt, as we've talked about before, it, it seemed like we were on a multi-year stretch with Johnson and Johnson uh, as part and parcel of their quarterly results came some sort of apology on behalf of management, <laughs> or oh, by the way, we're sorry about the recall that we had to issue in our, you know, in this division. That it seems like we may. Is it now quarter three, three in a row where Johnson and Johnson has just had decent results with no significant hiccups? Right, stocks and stocks at an all new all time high, which is saying something for a company like Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, uh, the things are things are going well. I mean, the drug business was up eleven um, percent. They their medical device business, which had been a strong strong part of the company for many years, is, is kind of flattened out. But like you said, it's it's that OTC consumer drug market that's really been strong. And they they talked about the fact that. The, the flu season was 
a little stronger this past quarter. It's always funny when a company, you know, a, John, a company like Johnson Johnson is always going to have a bad reason for why sales are up in certain segments. Unfortunately, I was going to say, if you're Johnson and Johnson, you're rooting for a bad flu oh, season each Just and every wait. year. Come on, Thanks to our Just demise. Get sick. Uh, but no, things were strong there. And, and, and again, like Coca-Cola, the U.S., the stronger U.S. dollar kind of hurt their top line a lot too. Um, yet they still, you know, reported overall revenue growth of 9%, which is very, very strong. What do you think? Yeah, I think I was just going to key in exactly with what Maddie finished up there with the revenue growth. I mean, we were looking at a lot of these companies, top line revenue growth, figuring out how, I mean, are the businesses growing? Are they making money? And that's how you first and foremost see it. Uh, so, yeah, 9, 9% revenue growth. The thing I like about Johnson & Johnson is they make their money from a bunch of different buckets, whether it's pharmaceuticals or medical devices or whatnot. They do – They do. it seems like kind of like uh, they have a place in everyone's home in some capacity yeah. to some degree. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have kids, certainly you're probably keeping them in business alone just from that, cough medicine and, and whatnot. But, uh, again – I think that you go back to a company like this and you can see back from 2008 to now, I mean, they've taken their balance sheet from about $12 billion on hand to $21 billion on, on hand, and they've just done a great job of playing a little defense, keeping keeping the company in line, uh, continue to grow the dividend. They grew the dividend 50% over that time. So I think, again, with you know, we have a lot of people chasing uh, dividend-paying stocks right now, and, and I think that Johnson & Johnson is another one uh, to look out for. It's going to be just a consistent, steady winner and uh, yeah, I think it's worth a look. I will say one thing, you know, I, I, the fact that Warren Buffett has kind of sold out of Johnson Johnson always gets me, especially when I see the stock at an all-time high. It gets, gives you pause. Gives me pause. I would say. And yeah, you have to wonder if maybe it wasn't because he felt like he had better opportunities somewhere uh, else. I just, you no, never no, know, right? I don't you know, think he questioned Johnson and Johnson as as a company. Yeah. I just, yeah, exactly right. I think he he saw better options. But sure. let me bring in another big dividend-paying stock, and that's Procter and Gamble, because for the last few years, what we've seen from Procter and Gamble is a winnowing down of their business. Mm-hmm. Like Johnson and Johnson, they were playing in a bunch of different areas, and they seem to, over the last few years, execute this plan of getting a little bit smaller, getting a little bit more focused. And it seemed to me, as someone who has owned Johnson and Johnson for a long time, I watched that and thought, I, I kind of feel like Johnson and Johnson needs to do that because, as I said before, they just it seemed like they couldn't go three months without some sort of mess up in one of their divisions. And I just, as a frustrated shareholder, I just thought, would you just get your house in order? And if you need to sell off a division or get a little smaller and a little bit more focused, do that. But now it seems like while they haven't really done that, certainly in the way the Procter & Gamble has, it seems like, I mean, the stock is up 28% in the last year. Mm. That's crazy. That's just insane when you consider that this is, to use your term, this is a steady eddy dividend payer. So the fact that it's performing like a, almost like a growth stock in the past year is nuts. It's been a champ. And I, and I think your point is very well taken. I think there, we see that a lot. I mean, we, we saw, we talked about Pepsi earlier. You know, Pepsi owned Yum, essentially owned Yum brands for a long time. You know, it owned those Pizza Hut and those franchises and it, it divested them. It really focused on, hey, we're going to have salty, sugary snacks. That's, that's what we're going to do. Uh, there's, there's a, I think there's a, a method to that with companies who have grown into these big conglomerates over time to start shedding some of those assets. And in some cases, they can get great premiums for them, sell them, you know, refocus, double down on your most profitable or most successful brands. Uh, and that's probably what Johnson Johnson's doing. Is the stock pricey right now? I'm not running out to buy new shares because I already have some shares. But I'm just I look at this and I I'm wondering if this is 
a cheap stock, if this is sort of fair, fairly valued, or you know, that to me, that's always the double-edged sword of the of the all-time high. On the one hand, it's great when your stock hits an all-time mm-hmm. high. On the other hand, it's sort of like, well, should I just should I sell some? Should I just hold on to what I've got? It's 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 tough. It's tough. I mean, I I I'm thinking Warren Buffett probably thinks it's expensive. I think dividend stocks have been so in vogue for. I don't know, three, four, going on five years now, probably. And, you know, there's a question of whether or not a lot of these companies, especially these big blue chip global companies have, have probably been bid up a little too high. That's, that's only my, my inkling. Yeah, I would, I would go on record definitely saying that I feel like it's expensive today. I mean, it's around 22 times earnings, which is expensive for a company like this because that implies a significant amount of growth ahead. And, and as, as you stated earlier, it's not a growth stock, right? right? It's performing like one, which is nice, but it's not really. It yields about 3%. But I think that we've had, you know, a situation where a rising tide is lifted virtually every boat out there you know the tide's going to fall back at some point and johnson and johnson's not going to be one that just falls off the face of the earth but i'm relatively certain there probably will be a, a better entry point than today and if they keep this up of of just not having any screw-ups soon people will actually expect them to continue <laughs> like that and expectations are careful those expectations yeah. right. finally goldman sachs first quarter profit of 2.2 billion dollars was more than analysts were expecting so why are shares down this morning Meh. You know, I don't think there's really all that much enthusiasm out there for investors. It's not like they did, it's not like they knocked the cover off the ball. I mean, they did, obviously they had a great quarter. Uh, but you know, again, it's not like they did anything terribly out of the ordinary either. I mean, we've been saying this for a little while now, the difference between the big banks, like a Citigroup and a Bank of America versus something like a JP Morgan and a Goldman Sachs, in that JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs have this advantage of sort of being able to do other things that these big uh, big banks like like Bank of America, Citigroup can't do. Uh, so so they do have high expectations. But by the same token, we always have to take that with a grain of salt because it is a bit of an information black hole. When you when you invest in a company like this, there is an inherent lack of information that you're going to have to just accept. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a prime example of that. I mean, fifty percent of their net revenue comes from trading, right. and trading can go up. I mean, they could have a great quarter where. Their trading revenue is up twenty percent, and they can have a quarter like this one where their trading revenue is down ten percent, and that's it's five billion. Right, that and they get from trading. And when we looked at J.P. Morgan's results, just I guess a couple of days ago or whatever, one of one of, one of the things they highlighted was, hey, we did really well this quarter. We didn't have any litigation expenses. Right. So I mean, you know, when they're touting no litigation expenses in the report, right. I, they have to kind of look at that and say, all right, is this is this a company I, I want to invest in? Because if so, then you better be willing to take on that that lack of knowledge because you're just not going to know everything that's going on. Well, and it also seems like one of those situations where if you take a step back and just say, wait a minute, we've had this, we have the Dow and the S&P at all-time highs. We've had this great run for the stock market. We've had this great run for the housing market. And oh, by the way, in the case of Goldman Sachs, cost-free capital for years what, yeah, you better be crushing it, right? What? Like, why aren't you crushing yeah, it? And, and if you can't crush it under these conditions, then why would I ever want to invest? Well, in their it? equity, their equity trading was down fifteen percent. I mean, that's I don't understand their model or their or their approach, but the market was up over ten percent in the quarter, and their tr- their equity trading was down fifteen percent. To me, that seems that 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 might seem like they didn't really do a great job. Or didn't See, there there are times when you have red flags because. There's litigation or there's a recall or something like this. This seems like a red flag under maybe optimal conditions. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, we had this, you know, great quarter. 
under awesome circumstances, and it's like, yeah, you know what? It's still not good enough. It's a red flag to me that you're not doing even better than you already right. are. Well, it's a very fair point. We'll end there. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>